Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Jim's away this week, so I get a chance to say without fear of contradiction what a real pleasure it is to do this podcast with him. I've learned so much from Jim with his deep, original, and refreshing view of the world. Sometimes we disagree, but we do it with goodwill, and we lean towards each other's views as we ask guests how they'd fix things. If you like what you hear, it would help if you rate and review How Do We Fix It. Go to Apple's iTunes app, follow the prompts, or simply do an online search for How to Rate and Review Podcasts. On this week of the July 4th holiday, I thought we'd take a fresh look at American history and the meaning of freedom with historian and writer Russell Shorto. He's also the writer of a current podcast series called American History Tellers. Check it out. But first, we visit again with Russell. Why did you write it now? And why does it have special resonance today well, as that's, opposed to, say, five years ago? Well, that's, I think, partly accidental because when I was working on it, I thought I was doing history. You know, I thought, I was, I thought it was these things were long ago settled. I didn't think we would, I would be living in a time when freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech, these things would be debatable or even under attack. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, this show reminds me of episodes when we spoke with Michael Shermer when he made the case for skepticism and science, and Stephen Greenblatt, who spoke movingly about Adam and Eve and our very human need for, for origin stories. Today's show is kind of an origin story about the origins of our country and, and many of our values. We're interviewing Russell Shorto. An author many people know from his great book, The Island at the Center of the World, about Manhattan in the days of the Dutch in the 17th century. His new book is called Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. At a time when democracy is challenged, we thought it was a good idea to speak about freedom. What does it mean to you? Why is it important? Russell Shorto, welcome to our table. Very happy to be here. You write, I think it's on the page one of your book, that in a sense, the American Revolution never ended. What do you mean? I think the American Revolution was fundamentally a promise of freedom. We think of it as political freedom. That was the main thing. And it was partly fulfilled. What was fulfilled was a remarkable thing that had never happened before. This, this republic, this one person, one vote idea. But even that 
it was only it was less than 10% of the people who had the vote at the time it was essentially white men who owned property but political freedom was only one part of this larger wave of freedom that had to do with individuals individual freedom of all kinds so if you think about it all of american history in a sense has been an attempt to unravel these other freedoms that were not fulfilled with the revolution, the civil war, the civil rights movement, even things like um, uh, consumer rights. Now, it, most people, when they think about the revolution, we know the stories of Ben Franklin and George Washington, but your book also focuses on a lot of people who typically aren't part of that central narrative. In fact, you say there were many sides to the conflict, many different people clamoring and clawing over freedom. Yeah. My idea from the beginning was not so much to write a book about the American Revolution, but to get a feel for what it was like from different perspectives. And years ago, started with this notion that I would pick an, an assembly of people from very different backgrounds. And they had to be people whose lives were well documented because I, I'm doing nonfiction. Why did you write it now, and why does it have special resonance today well, as that's, opposed to, say, five years ago? Well, that's, I think, partly accidental because when I was working on it, I thought I was doing history. You know, I thought, I was, I thought it was these things were long ago settled. I didn't think I would be living in a time when freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech, these things would be debatable or even under attack. Uh, so it's in the past year or so I have... I had this sensation that these documents that I have been kind of up to my neck in for the past four or five years, suddenly people are returning to them and saying, well, wait a second, what is this all based on? And for you personally, I mean, when you think about those values that the American Revolution brought to the fore, what particularly speaks to you? My um, historical training is in the 17th century. When I wrote my book, The Island at the Center of the World, about the Dutch founding of New York. Uh, in part out of this fascination I've always had with the 17th century and the moment when people suddenly started to see themselves as individuals the way we do. Before that, you were completely bound up with your guild and your church and your synagogue or your parish or whatever it was. And at that moment, when they started peering into telescopes and microscopes... Or, and in, or like Descartes into their own minds. Exactly. Right. Uh, people like Descartes suddenly saying, wait a second, we all have this thing called reason, and it connects with the universe in this mysterious way. And that means every individual is equally valuable, equally worthy, equally a worthy of idea. a vote. People don't, I don't think people appreciate what a, what a shocking... It was almost like a Copernican revolution in our idea of the person. Exactly. So that's what has always, that's where I've always kind of gone back to that moment. And so I thought I want to look at it from different individuals' perspectives, not just the perspective of the, the men in their powdered wigs, but, you know, a what, did it, what did it feel like to be a slave in the period, to be, in the case of another of the people in my book, a loyalist woman, uh, to be uh, at the street level, to be uh, a tradesman. That was one that really captured me, your story of Abraham Yates, this shoemaker who was kind of self-educated and became a low-level official in the city of Albany when it was really a raw, almost a frontier yeah. town. And yet he was outraged at the British putting all their troops in everyone's houses and abusing the local population during the French and Indian Wars. And he wrote this amazing legal memorandum. In one of the lines he says that people have a fixed fundamental right 
born with him as to the freedom of his person and property and his estate, which he cannot be deprived of. And this was years. This is 20 years before. So in other words, troops can't just show up and say, we're fighting a war and we need to take over your house. And your food and everything else. Right. 20 years before the Declaration of Independence. And he is a nobody. I mean, most people have not heard of him, which is one one reason I was attracted to him, which goes to make the point that this was really in the air. People all different levels of society had this notion of freedom and how it applied to them. At the same time, armies were squaring off at Saratoga and Lexington and Concord. Husbands and wives were interacting with each other in a different way. And you see it reflected like from the 1750s to the 1770s. In the 1750s, a family portrait was the woman and children sitting like on a sofa and the man standing. By the 1770s, they're all on the same level. They're all standing. So in these little ways, you see at the social level, you know, these freedoms or, or where we stand as individuals uh, ha- have a different resonance. So speaking of differences in gender roles, one of the characters that you talk about is, is Margaret Coughlin. I hope mm-hmm. I have the pronunciation right. Coughlin or Coughlin. It was since, since they didn't have recording devices, we don't know how she pronounced yeah. it. <laughs> Tell us about her, because she's kind of an extraordinary woman. She is, and she's not. Uh, a couple of interviewers have asked me, why did you not pick someone who is a more representative of women at the time? And I chose her, I think, because she's very atypical, but she also represents... I mean, it, it would be anachronistic to talk about a woman's movement in the, at that time. But the cutting edge of it was forced marriage. There were plays being written and newspaper articles arguing that a woman should be allowed to marry for love and should not be forced by her parents. And that is exactly what happened to Margaret when she was a teenager. In the middle of the war, her father, who was a British officer, decided she would marry another British officer whom she despised. And then she she tried to rebel, then she was forced to anyway, and he was abusive. She eventually leaves him. She's very bold. Throughout her life, she makes several dramatic Which is almost unheard of. Unheard of. Leaves him in Wales, walks off into the mountains, walks 60 miles, and never sees him again. She wants to have a life of her own. She wants some form of independence, which was basically impossible for a woman at the time. And so she identifies two role models, two ways to do it. You could either become an actress or you could become a mistress to somebody powerful. She tries both. Uh, she's more successful at being a mistress, and so she becomes a mistress to several important men in London and later in Paris. And so her life is this tragedy where you know she's from high to low. She's like a, attending all the state dinners and balls and things, and the next uh, moment she's in debtor's prison. Uh, but it, it, the, the trajectory of her life comes out of the American Revolution. It would not have happened the way it did had the revolution not existed. And out of this notion of freedom and where it was at that moment. And another story that really spoke to me, even though the experience is so alien to me, was the story of Venture Smith, the slave who was brought over from Africa as a boy. Venture Smith was a fascinating man, born in West Africa at the age of 10. His village was attacked by an invading army, He was taken into slavery, so he ended up in New England as a slave and worked indefatigably to save money to free himself and then eventually his family. Uh, And and what's interesting to me about that is all of his effort, this really dogged effort, which he describes, he dictated his uh, life story at the end of his life, 
is taking place against the backdrop of the Stamp Act, the towns and duties, where white people are clamoring, this growing clamor for freedom, which he basically is ignoring. He's Because he's saying, in effect, I am not trusting that that's going to apply to me. Yeah, that, I'm going that, to take matters in That's not my fight. Mind. That's somebody else's. Yeah, it's just not going to. I don't believe it. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is historian Russell Shorto, who is author of Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, it's impossible to read this book without thinking about everything that's going on in politics today. And one thing that struck both Richard and me is that in a way, it's a rebuttal to some of the nativism and you know even white nationalism that we that we hear. You find these threads that go into the making of America in all these different sources. It wasn't just those guys, as you say, in the powdered wigs in Philadelphia. And not just that, but the country was German. It was Dutch. It was Iroquois. It was Muncie. It was Shawnee. Um, there were people speaking different languages. Uh, there were different communities that were quite closed off from the rest of the colonies. And then there were these quasi-melting pots in the cities. So, so it was a very diverse place from the beginning. Really cosmopolitan in, in many in places. The cities were cosmopolitan. Certainly New York was. Talk about Corn Planter, uh, a Seneca tribal leader. His, his real name escapes me. Kayetwake. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I was drawn to him. I wanted to have the native perspective. But even at that, they're all different tribes, each of which had their own stake in what was going on. He's the kind of stereotypical noble warrior, but he's also this philosophical, a political animal, a realist, who is progressively drawn into the complexity of it. And he was a member of the Seneca tribe, which was part of the Iroquois nation? That's right. The, well, the Iroquois, there were six nations, and the Seneca were the westernmost of them. Okay. And so he takes part in one of these gatherings at which they're debating whether or not to take part in the war. He argues strenuously that they stay out of it. The vote goes against him. And so he goes along with his people, fights viciously, uh, burning down American settlements and attacking forts. Then the war's over. The British lose, which means the Iroquois lose. The Iroquois decided in the revolution to side with the British, figuring that the British were much stronger. And, and would, Well, the British and, had won the last war. And the British, uh, <laughs> Joseph Brandt, who was Corn Planter's sort of uh, rival for supremacy, had been to London. He'd seen this society, and he came back telling people, look— these guys are going to win. So Corn Planter was overruled. The British lose the war, which means the Iroquois do too. 
And then the Iroquois say to Corn Planter, we want you to represent us. You go to the Americans and, and negotiate. So now he's in this impossible position of he never wanted to be involved in the war anyway, and now he has to get what he can out of it. And the Americans basically say, too bad. You're on the losing side. We told you not to fight against us. Uh, and then ultimately, then he and George Washington have two meetings in Washington's presidency. And in this, the last meeting, it's very poignant. By this time, you know, settlers have moved into their lands uh, and they're being forced to sell. And, and meanwhile, a lot of his people back home are saying, you go and you get our lands back. And he knows that's not going to happen. So what he's saying to Washington is, look, we're forced to sell the lands. I've heard that these things exist called banks and that if you put your money in there, it'll be safe. So, and that I've heard about this thing called interest. Can you explain it to me? And so he's, he's basically saying to him, help me get something out of this, something lasting. He really represents the whole native quandary, I think. And it is a quandary. I mean, there was, it, it was just so heartbreaking. And they're totally sold out by the British. They promise that if you, if you ally yourselves with us, we'll protect you. And they just leave them to the mercy of the Americans. And what I was struck by is, I think for a lot of Americans today, we have a hard time realizing the cultural military power that these native groups had. So at the start of the book, at the beginning of the French and Indian Wars, the Iroquois nations are practically a military power like France and Britain, yeah. and who they align with is critical. By the end of the Revolution, their power has really been sapped away in this yeah. And in, they in see where it's struggle. going. And, and, and so Cornplanter, trying to be a realist after the war, he lives into the 1830s, he's advising that the Iroquois children learn English, that they have schools, and so he's accepting more and more of these things. And then at the end of his life, he has this dream, and in the dream, the creator comes to him and basically says, this is the wrong way. Our people can't be free like this. So, he's, so he tries to turn back the clock. He tells them, let's close these schools, let's stop it all, and of course you can't do that. And his view, and, and the Native American view of freedom at the time, is very different from the white settlers. That, you know, I spent time with someone from Ganandagan, which is it's a Seneca culture museum south of Rochester, and uh, uh, this uh, curator there named Michael Galbin helped me understand the Seneca mindset, what it was like, because it's so hard to do, especially since all the records are written by uh, non-natives. Uh, Their concept of freedom, it came down to the individual. Not just, you know, your tribe ruled this way, your village could go another way. And within your village, you individually could go your own way. So there was a great deal of freedom, which... Ironically, while the Americans are fighting for freedom, they interpret this Iroquois freedom to be waywardness. Let's talk about freedom of the press. The revolution is an era when that was a brand new concept, and the role of the press, it was so dominant in spreading these ideas and in uh, circulating some of the ideology and also the kind of cultural energy that made the revolution possible. Yeah, the press was, in a, I mean, everyone recognized that the press was a vital um, uh, organ for spreading what was going on. Uh, and the, the freedom had been established, in a sense, a couple of decades earlier with the, in New York with the case of John Peter Zengler. The notion that the, if, if you report it, and if it's true, you're allowed to report it, rather than, you know, if it's against the government, then you can't report it. Um, Which lives on today in libel law. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I mean, exactly. The so, truth is your best defense. So by defense. the time of the revolution, this was, uh, this was you know, well-established now. And the issue had to do with the fact that um, uh, the British 
where they were not in control, then the Americans, the American presses printed what they wanted. So they didn't have that issue. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. Right. So, so since you started writing this book, how has your view of freedom changed? I think um, partly from writing that book and also from having lived for six years in the Netherlands, it gives you, it always, something like that gives you perspective on your home country. And um, not long after I first moved there, I wrote an article for the New York Times about um, the experience of living in a, quote, social welfare state. Um, And I had these stereotypical American notions of what that meant, and it really felt different from that. And uh, so I was trying to, you know, tease that out. And there is, a, you know, the American sense is that you're free as an individual, the more individual, the less you are oppressed by the state. Um, their sense is they still see government as a representative of the people. Government is the people. Everybody complains about the government, and they have lots of flaws with it. But they still see the government, and, and therefore, when the government is uh, involved in a, uh, a healthcare system that applies to everyone, they see that as actually that doesn't diminish your freedom. That increases, that gives you more freedom because it means you don't have to worry what's going to happen to my family if I drop dead. You know, I mean, the, the certain things are taken care of, and that gives you this cushion. Are there any takeaways from history uh, that that? we could learn from there are these echoes that are still echoing with us and uh once again it i think by by being aware of that we can we can begin to transcend it the figure of abraham yates being this anti-revolutionary who fought right alongside all the patriots in the in the war and then the moment it was over basically turned on them and said you all are becoming an elite just like the elite that we just overthrew so i don't trust you uh, that you see repeated this populist theme throughout American history. You see that, I think, now in recent history, both in the people who supported Trump and in the people now who were scared to death of Trump. Uh, this very healthy suspicion that those in power are going to thwart you. Russell Shorto, author of Revolution Song. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you both. It was yeah. fun. So, Jim, there's one thing Russell said that I'm, I think, a lot more comfortable with than you are because I also lived in Europe. I lived in, in Britain for 20 years. And this idea that, that the government is there to, to help you yeah. in an ideal circumstance, even though you complain about it. Right. I think I don't disagree with that in the best scenarios. I think those scenarios tend to happen in countries that had a long history of capitalism that got them there. Amsterdam was one of the world's first capitalist states, and they built up the traditions of individual rights. You have rights over your property. They built up a lot of economic momentum that then allows them to say, okay, let's readjust the dials fairly slightly, and we'll have moderately high taxes, and we'll have nice benefits in the government, but that's not the same as we're just after the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution when Lenin taking power, is we are going to control everything and strip 
everything from the owners of property. And you look at what a disaster that was. So my point is that the societies that we think of as being sort of quasi-socialist, they're really not socialists at all. They're capitalist with a, a pleasant overlay of social welfare. It's a very different thing. One of the loveliest things about this book that we've just talked about is that it's a thriller. It's, it reads like a novel, but also that, that the American Revolution um, and the principles espoused in it are way more complex than they're often painted, and that we can look at freedom from a variety of perspectives and disagree about my view of freedom versus your view of freedom and, and yet still celebrate the concept. Yes, yes. But I want to circle back to something we were talking about a little bit in the, in the conversation with, with Russell, and that is that freedom is also scary. Freedom is also... Um, sometimes it's intimidating, and we've seen it again and again, societies that have, have pulled back from it. We see it in fascism. We see it in communism. We see it sometimes in movements that you want to submerge the individual in something you know, that seems greater than themselves, and we see how easily that impulse can turn really dark. Yeah, we see really it in dark. religious fundamentalism, too. Uh, right. So I think we are living in a time right now when the notion of freedom— that really needs to be reaffirmed. It we do, we, it, we it have does. lost the sense of why it mattered so much. And we've also seen it with the rise of religious fundamentalism in the Middle East and, and in the West and in other parts of the world. And we see it in the denial of a woman's right to choose, that that is wrapped up in, in a very kind of rigid concept where you're denying, in many cases, somebody else's right to do something on their own. I don't want to drag this off into an abortion debate. No, but, but I, it but, is part of this broader thing of of judging the limits right. of somebody else's it's freedom a, i i'm i'm a libertarian so i don't take a stand i'm not a i'm i'm not um you know uh, somebody who's i i'm pro-choice basically but in defense of those people if you believe that the fetus has human rights then that is a question of rights mm-hmm. now i don't think we need to litigate no. that right here but so there's so many different ways to look that, at this you know and and so russell's book he talks about the promise of freedom Slavery is this heartbreaking example of how the promise of freedom was so incomplete, and even today, not fully realized. And I think that, you know, it is really important to, to keep circling back to those values. And he talked a lot about the Enlightenment. This has come up with, with Michael Shermer and Neil deGrasse Tyson. The, the, that period, that hundred, couple of hundred years when we started seeing ourselves as individuals, started turning telescopes up into the sky, started rejecting the authority of the church and saying that we need to use rationalism to, uh, to understand the world. The most important period in human history, I think, and I actually am quite concerned that those values are being rejected by many, both on, on the far right, on the far left, Islamic fundamentalists. Across the board, we're seeing people turn away from that challenge of really thinking hard and taking responsibility for one's beliefs. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And that was not a solution. By no, no, no. I think it was in a way. Uh, and our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Yeah. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, find out more at uh, DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.